Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders here for Grace Fellowship Church. From my winters that I've spent in State College so far, I've learned that there are two kinds of people that live in State College. There are those who freak out and go shopping right before a big snowstorm. And then there are those who have to deal with the long lines at the grocery store right before the big snowstorm. And I try to convince myself I'm in that latter category. I'm not there just because I, I freaked out, but of course it's funny that I'm still there at the store at the same time. I tell this little joke for two reasons. First, because God made us to have heightened senses when we expect disaster to strike. We fear the unknown and we need to preserve ourselves. That's why we freak out and go to the grocery store. But the second reason why I I tell this joke is because jokes like this are, are funny when we try to make distinctions between different groups of people. There are many possible distinctions to make. That's why there are so many jokes that begin with, there are two kinds of people in the world. Today's passage in Exodus will combine These two threads for us. The idea of preparing for a great disaster. In fact, we're going to discuss one of the greatest disasters in the entire Bible. And the other thread, this of making a distinction between two kinds of people. This disaster that we will read about will ruin everything. And the distinction to be made here can rescue everything. Life or death is in the balance, and the disaster we read about prepares us for an even worse disaster yet to, do, to befall all humanity. Will you be prepared? And the distinction we discuss will show us how to find rescue from this terrible disaster. Will you be on the right side of the divide? As we look through Exodus 11 and part of 12, we'll see three things in your outline. In order to survive the greatest disaster of all time, we must survive one more plague, undergo a new beginning, and grasp a crucial distinction. Let me pray again, and then I'll start on chapter 11. Father, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for the warnings. You have given us the advance notice that we can avoid the coming disaster. Help us to trust in Christ and see him more clearly, that we might hide ourselves in him and be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start reading in Exodus chapter 11. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 34. So far in the book of Exodus, God's people... The Hebrews have been in harsh slavery to Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They have been building his store cities and giving him a cushion of protection against his enemies. God sent his appointed rescuer to deliver them, a man named Moses. Through Moses' hand, God has wrought nine devastating plagues against Pharaoh and against the Egyptians with increasing intensity, increasing devastation and higher stakes each time, and the Lord is now ready to use maximum force to coerce Pharaoh into submission. 
to let his people go. That's where we come in, Exodus chapter 11, starting at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Now Pharaoh has consistently refused to let the people go out of their slavery, though the Lord demands it. And in fact, where we left off at the end of chapter 10, verse 28, we left off with the the thought, the, the idea that Pharaoh threatened Moses with death should Moses ever see Pharaoh's face again. And so here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11, this is presumably before Moses leaves Pharaoh's presence, God speaks to Moses about one last plague. Moses is still in Pharaoh's presence here until verse 8. That's where we're told that he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. And so the easiest way to read this, this flow from chapter 10 into chapter 11, is that this is all a part of this conversation that Moses has with Pharaoh that began in chapter 10, verse 24, during the plague of darkness. So the land is still dark. The, the, the Egyptians are still groping around, unable to see anyone or anything. And in the midst of that, God reminds Moses of what he's about to do. And then Moses speaks to Pharaoh to tell him that God is not done with him yet. There will be, in verse 1, yet one plague more. In verses 2 and 3, we're told that this plague will be so completely devastating that the Egyptians will not only beg the people of Israel to leave, but they will, in fact, pay them just to go. And verse 8, Moses says that they will come and bow down before Moses while they beg him to leave them alone. The picture here is of a people who have been so damaged and broken by these plagues that they could never 
think about holding on to these slaves for another day longer, and they would do absolutely anything to be rid of them. Now, what could possibly bring about such a huge turnaround from them saying, no, you can't go, no, you can't go, no, you can't go, to here's all my money if you'll just get out of here. What will bring about that turnaround? We're told in verse 4 that God himself will go out in the midst of Egypt at midnight. Verse 5, every firstborn in the land of Egypt will die. Every firstborn. There will be no distinctions made in Egypt. doesn't matter if it's the firstborn of Pharaoh or the firstborn of the slave girl or even the firstborn of your cattle. All will die. And it's interesting, when we talk about this, we often talk about the death of the firstborn sons, but this passage says nothing about sons. It says, every firstborn. Every firstborn will die. It was earlier in chapter 4 where God said that he would kill Pharaoh's firstborn son because Israel was God's firstborn son. Verse 6, God says that these people in Egypt will cry as they have never cried before, nor will they ever cry like this again. You see, all of this, God's involvement with these people, it all got started in chapter 2, verse 23, when the people of Israel cried out to God, and God heard their cries, and he swore to do something about it. And that something means now making their oppressors cry like never before. Verse 7 tells us, however, that not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And we will talk more about that distinction when we get later in the passage. The point is this. There is a fight between Pharaoh and God and God is about to win this fight, and he will win big. This is not like a boxing match where you knock out your opponent to win. This is the sort of boxing match where the, the, the victor wins in such a way as to make sure his opponent can never box again. And that he quivers in cowardice if he ever sees your face again. How does this apply? Like all who dwelt in Egypt back then, whether slave or free, friends, we too must survive one last plague. You see, this same God who threatened to go out at midnight and kill every firstborn of Egypt, he has come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, and Jesus has threatened to return to earth at an hour when nobody will expect him. He has a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and he rides forth to wage war against all nations. And when he comes, he will not only kill the body, but he will have power and authority 
to send the souls of men and women into the unquenchable fires of eternal hell. All who stand against him will fall. Who can withstand his power and his fury at our acts of rebellion, at our acts of indifference toward him? Do not think you can merely avoid him. And for the young people here today, teenagers, children, young adults, you'll soon be heading out into a new phase of life as you keep growing and moving into new stages of life. Please remember this. You can't ever leave this God behind. You will need him to survive that final plague of judgment coming on all humanity. And as your life changes and as you grow and you develop and you move out and everything changes, this one thing must never change. This is our God. This God is your God. On that day, some will beg the mountains to fall upon them rather than face the fury of this king. But there is nowhere they can hide from his searching eyes, from his knowing gaze and his almighty hands. We must survive one last plague. But how? How do we survive this last plague? The next section answers that for us. We must undergo a new beginning. This remarkable God cares about his people. And look at how he cares about them. He will not remove them completely from the plague so that they don't have to face it. No, because they must understand that this last plague is exactly what they deserve, but that from this plague, God in his righteous justice will spare them. So God goes about providing them a way of escape. Only after Moses leaves Pharaoh's presence, the way of escape is not offered to Pharaoh or to any in Egypt. And the escape involves a new beginning for the people of God. It's a fresh start. It's a reboot, perhaps even something akin to a new birth, as though this nation were to be born again. Look at Exodus 12, verse 1, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So right here from the start, God marks this new beginning for these people, this new birth with a new calendar. Their life as a people, their annual cycle of coming and going will begin with this event. This fact signals that everything about them is about to change. And this new beginning, which provides Escape from this one last plague, it consists of two primary parts. A perfect lamb and unleavened bread. We need to get these two parts to understand the new beginning. The perfect lamb, which represents, letter A, a perfect substitute. And then unleavened bread, which represents, letter B, a fresh start. Let's start with A, a perfect substitute. We see this in verses 3 through 13. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. 
And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Let me explain what's going on here. In verse 3, each household must take a lamb. Verse 4, unless your household is too small, then you share the lamb with neighboring household. But you must have this lamb. Everyone in every house must have a lamb. Everything depends on it. Verse 5, the lamb must be without blemish, only one year old. In verse 6, we're told that they are to keep it for five days from the 10th of the month until the 14th of the month, where they will have it in their house. They'll get to know it. They'll take care of it. They'll feed it. They will grow fond of it. And then they kill it. And then you need to pay attention to the lamb's body and the lamb's blood. Verses 8 to 11 tell us what to do with the body. You eat the flesh roasted, not boiled or raw. You have to burn any leftovers and you eat it in in haste with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. The picture is of a a stand-up meal. There is not enough time to set the table or do the dishes. This is the advent of McDonald's in the Old Testament. Pay attention to the body and how you eat that body. And then we are told about the blood of this lamb in verse, verses 7 and then 12 and 13. You are to paint the blood on the lintel and the doorposts, so the frame of the door, the outside door. When God goes out to strike all the firstborn, when he sees the painted blood, he will pass over your house, verse 13, and no plague will befall you to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt. The point, friends, is that this little lamb represents their rescue. Without this lamb, you cannot be rescued. But with this lamb, with the body and the blood, by taking that life, your lives will be spared. By splashing the visible sign of this lamb's death on your houses, God will see and remember his promise not to destroy you. By 
feeding on this substitute by taking its flesh into yourself to nourish you and give you life, you will find the life you've always wanted. True freedom. Unhindered relationship with the God who created you and owns you. And you will not belong to Pharaoh any longer. Their new beginning derives in part from the death of a perfect substitute. But there's more we have to understand. The new beginning also comes from a cleansing out of all the old things. A fresh start. So letter B. Let's look at verses 14 to 20. A fresh start. This is the meaning of the unleavened bread. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly. And on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, That person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. There's a lot of repetition there. Do you get the idea? You shall not eat leavened bread. You shall only eat unleavened bread. You see, God fast forwards for them to the future. And he says, because of what's happening here, you need to celebrate this every year. For the rest of your generations. Not only is this month now the start of each new year for you. But in verse 14 he says every year they shall commemorate this event with a feast of unleavened bread. And to understand what's going on in this feast. We need to clear up a common misconception. He does not tell them to eat bread without yeast. He tells them to eat unleavened bread. Those are not the same thing. Leaven is not the same thing as yeast. We need to understand that the way they baked bread back then was not the way we typically bake it today. And if we equate leaven with yeast, we miss the critical imagery that's actually intended by this ritual. You you understand that, that yeast was not available to them back then in packets or in small jars. And there were no refrigerators to preserve such things for baking. So what they did when they made bread was they would, they would get their ingredients, including yeast, you know, how, however they could find it. And they would make their dough. And, and as they made all the dough, they would take a small patch of that dough and they would set it aside, maybe in a jar or a bowl. They would set it aside. And they would, with the rest of the dough, they would bake their bread and bake what they were going to do. But that saved lump 
would become the starter for their next batch of dough, the next time they had to bake. And from that batch, they would save another small lump to be a starter for the next time, and so on and so on. If you've ever made Amish friendship bread, it's a little bit like that. That little saved lump that was put off to the side, which provided the starter for the next batch, that was called the leaven. That's what leaven is. This is why English translations don't typically use the word yeast, because leaven is slightly different than yeast. Now, leaven has the same effect as yeast, because the leaven has the old batch of dough that has the yeast in it. When you bring it in, it will make the new dough rise with the yeast. But it's just, we need to understand it's not exactly the same thing. Because knowing now what leaven is, visualize the picture given by this feast. In verse 15, he says, On the first day of the feast, remove all leaven from your houses. What does that mean? It means you now have no starter for your dough. So when you go to bake bread, what do you have to do? You have to start from scratch. This has nothing to do with any kind of special symbolism of yeast. It just has to do with starting over from scratch. You need a new recipe, you need new ingredients, and you need a new process for putting it all together. And you'll eat this unleavened bread for seven days. That means every time you bake bread in those seven days, you are starting over from scratch with no starter, nothing to get you started. In verse 19, it says, For seven days there shall be no leaven. So each time you make dough, you can't set any bit of it aside to make the next batch easier. You have to keep restarting from scratch or else you will be cut off from the congregation. It doesn't matter if you're a native or a foreigner. So in verse 20, he says, Eat nothing leavened for those seven days. Everything that you eat must have been created new. After this feast is over, you can go back to leavening your dough for the rest of the year. But with each new year, there is to be a spring cleaning, a cleansing of what you carried into the year, and there will be a fresh start each time. Now, we can get so lost in these details, our eyes glaze over when we read a passage like this, that the imagery is lost on us. But please understand, it's very straightforward. What the Lord is trying to communicate, the point is this. To escape the coming wrath, you need a fresh start. You need a new beginning. That's why he highlights the unleavened bread so much. To find a new beginning, you must set aside the old and begin again with the new. Their new beginning, their new birth resulted from the death of a substitute, the perfect lamb, and a fresh start for their own lives with the unleavened bread, out with the old, in with the new. I have two applications for you from this new beginning. Application number one, to escape our one last plague, we too require the death of a substitute. Jesus came for this very purpose. Here's your application. Believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus alone to rescue you. And as you trust in him, that's like eating the body of that lamb and splashing the blood on your doorposts. It's like saying, hey God, 
Look, look, here's the blood. Here's the body. Jesus died in my place. Please keep your promise not to destroy me. And you know, when we, when we partake of the Lord's Supper once a month, the New Testament calls it a memorial. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, in part, he was reflecting on this memorial function of the Passover. That it's not only to help us remember, but part of the reason why we partake of the Lord's Supper is to help God remember. Just like painting that blood on the doorpost, when God sees it, when he sees us partaking of the Lord's Supper, he remembers his promise not to destroy us because he already took out his wrath on the Lord Jesus. You don't need to physically hang pictures of Jesus on your walls, but you do need to have visible expression of Jesus in your life. Your life should show physical, visible evidence of the death of this substitute on your behalf. Do you talk about him? Have you been baptized? Do you confess your faith to others? Are you consistent in joining God's people to worship him? To feed on his body and blood in the Lord's Supper? And by faith, to trust in him daily? This is your first application is you need Jesus to escape the coming wrath. Application number two. To escape our one last plague, we too need a fresh start. And Jesus came for this very purpose. Jesus spoke of coming to know him in the language of new birth. John chapter 3. And the New Testament describes the Christian life as a life of putting off the old man and putting on the new man in Christ. Like becoming a new person. And the, the Passover imagery is all over the scripture, such as in Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And he goes on to say, put off all these sins and put on righteousness. To escape that one last plague when Jesus returns, we must clean out what we once were and become something new. And to be clear, we don't do this in order to secure God's favor. No, we do it because we already have his favor because of the death of the substitute. You see, they, they put that lamb in their house on the 10th of the month and then they killed it on the 14th and ate it that night on the 14th. And then it was after that point, starting in the 14th, that they would begin to eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month. The death of the substitute must come first. Then you can become a new creature. Then you can find a new beginning. And that new beginning proves that the substitute has taken our place as we live out this new life. We set aside those things about us that draw God's wrath and we become new people, unleavened people, people of love for God and for our neighbor. The substitute lamb and the new life of unleavened bread both work together to bring about a new beginning for the people of God. And this new beginning brings into sharper contrast the distinction I alluded to earlier. This distinction is something we must grasp if we are to survive the greatest disaster of all time. And we must never apologize for a God who makes such sharp distinctions. Our final point here 
Let's grasp this crucial distinction, verses 21 through 28. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. So Moses reminds them of what to do in this darkest of nights. And at the heart of his instruction, he makes the most crucial of distinctions. Verse 23, the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, but he will pass over your door with the blood on it. And when they are to explain this ceremony to their children in the future, as they celebrate it each year, the most important thing for them to communicate is the nature of this distinction. Verse 27, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. You see, some will be struck and some will be spared. Some will be passed over, and others will be passed through. And what makes the difference? Verse 23. When he sees the blood. When he sees the blood. The point is this. God makes a distinction between those who are his people and those who are not. And this distinction determines whether any given person survives the one last plague or not. When he looks at this person, will he see the blood? The blood of Jesus, the perfect lamb. If that is covering you, God passes over. If that is not covering you, God passes right through you. And it is not going to be nice. How does this apply? Brothers and sisters, we must never apologize for the distinctions God makes in his word. There truly are only two kinds of people in the world. It is not the case that there are many peoples with many ideologies or many pathways to God or to eternal life. There are two paths and only two. Please consider today which path you are on. Either you are covered by the blood of Jesus, and when God sees that blood, the destroyer will pass over you because you trust Jesus. Or you stand on your own, and God's destroyer will pass 
through you while he tears you to shreds. And usually, people from both of these categories can be found in any given community. Even in this church, we must never assume that because someone attends this church or serves in this church or even preaches in this church, that that person is automatically in God's favor because we must always look for evidence of a new rescued life. We need to see that unleavened bread, the new life, and we have church discipline to rescue those who wander. In the church at the city of Corinth, the people were tolerating a man who was committing immoral deeds that wouldn't have even been tolerated by secular or irreligious communities. And this church was boasting in the freedom they had because of God's grace. And here's what Paul, God's appointed representative, had to say to them. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul uses the exact imagery of Passover to instruct this community to kick this guy out of their church. Jesus has already died, and so now you need to celebrate this Feast of Unleavened Bread. That means getting rid of the malice and evil and taking on sincerity and truth. Hopefully it will teach him a lesson and his soul can be saved. And may the Lord grant us mercy to be a church who makes clear distinctions between righteousness and wickedness, between faith and unbelief, between deception and truth. And as we do, we keep this feast and we will escape the wrath to come when Jesus returns to judge. Make no mistake, there is one last plague coming, which we must survive. And we will survive only with a new beginning, which requires the death of a substitute and a brand new life. And then we must maintain clear distinctions so we can win more and preserve, win more people to our community and preserve this community's identity as the people of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending Christ, our Passover lamb, to be sacrificed. And as we trust in him, as we feed on him by faith, because we believe him that's like eating the lamb and taking him to ourselves and painting the blood on our doors. Lord, please see and do not destroy. And we ask that you would please now make us new people. Help us to get rid of the old leaven of our old lives, of our sin and our idols and our rebellion and our indifference. And help us to become the people you want us to be in sincerity and truth. Lord, we trust you and we love you and we ask that you would keep your promise to preserve us from the wrath to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.